Olivia here. I want to tell you about a new podcast from Axios called One Big Thing. It's hosted by Nyla Budu and features interviews with leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. Each week, you'll hear one big conversation on the trends shaping our world from people like Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, technology reporter Ina Freed, and chef and humanitarian Jose Andres. So go ahead, listen to One Big Thing on your favorite podcast app. New episodes drop every Thursday. What? Oh my goodness. Radio Lab. Whoa. Adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Hello and welcome to BioEats World, a podcast perched at the intersection of biology and technology. I'm Lauren Richardson, PhD, scientist, and former journal editor. And today we are talking about aliens. Now, perhaps you're thinking, Lauren, aliens are the stuff of sci-fi. But as we discuss in this episode, the search for and conjecture about alien life has evolved from science fiction to just plain science. I'm joined today by Art Kirschenbaum, PhD zoologist, fellow at the University of Cambridge, and author of the new book, The Zoologist's Guide to the Galaxy, What Animals on Earth Reveal About Aliens and Ourselves, to explore ideas of what alien life must be like based on the laws that govern life on Earth and the universe at large. We dig into big questions like, does biology have universal properties like physics does? Will the process of evolution be distinct on different planets? Are limbs, sex, and intelligence Earth-specific features of evolution? And importantly, what does the study of alien life teach us about our place here on Earth? We just recently witnessed the very exciting landing of the rover Perseverance on Mars, and its mission is to search for signs of life there. But of course, this isn't the first mission to Mars with that goal and the pursuit and like ideation of what alien life is, where, where it might be, um, you know, how we might encounter it is an ancient human pastime. Um, but it seems like the search for life on other planets has made a real shift from something that is like fringe and wacky and sci-fi to something that feels, you know, almost inevitable and like a respectable scientific pursuit. Uh, and so I'd like to start with what you think has catalyzed this shift. Yeah, I think I think you're right. There has been a shift and it. it's been a shift in the way that people perceive this idea of are there aliens? But more than that, it's been a shift in the way that, that scientists have approached it. it. You're right. It was wacky. It was outlandish. It, once upon a time, it was it was not a, a, a field for, for serious inquiry because we couldn't see any way of testing it. We couldn't see any way of answering these questions. And exactly what's changed is that really kind of all of a sudden, we've got technologies, we've got approaches, we've got ideas. So on the simplest level, just knowing the number of planets in the galaxy changes everything, right? It's, it, the statistics now are so heavily stacked in favor of, of life that, that I think that you'd have to be pretty churlish to claim now that we're the only ones in the galaxies. That, that's kind of the first step. But what we've seen 
more recently, as instruments get better and better, is that we see this huge diversity of extrasolar planets. And that actually raises a lot more interesting questions because, yes, there will be planets like Earth with similar histories to Earth. And there'll be planets like Mars and like Venus. And there'll be planets like, um, obviously, there'll be planets like gas giants, like Jupiter and, and, and Saturn, with presumably moons like Jupiter and Saturn, which we, we see now as, as potential potential locations for life as well. So it's also fueling a greater interest in the diversity, the possible diversity of of environments that, that could support very, very different kinds of life. Yeah. Are these tools and technologies that you mentioned, are these biological in nature or do they tend to be more like physical, chemical, like tools that NASA's using? I, I think it's a bit of both because things feed off each other, right? So when you start getting the ability to probe the, the chemical composition of an alien atmosphere, which we're getting really close to being able to do that with planets outside the solar system, then chemists and geochemists and, and geophysicists start thinking about, well, what kind of environments might they be on, on this planet? Mm-hmm. And they start modeling, you know, the, the interactions between the different non-biological components of, of the planets. So it becomes really synergistic. It, we really saw that with what, what was happening on, on Venus, this, this whole Venus phosphine situation was that, you know, this is not something that, that a biologist pursues or an astronomer. This was a, a really complicated modeling issue between people who understood how these chemical reactions might take place in the atmosphere, how they would interact with the rocks and, and with the biology. So it's becoming really cross-disciplinary. Right. And the phosphine example is excellent because phosphine is something on Earth that is only produced by biological systems. And so when we found it in Venus, we're like, is that a suggestion that there's life on Venus? Because we only see this chemical in the instances of life. So from my understanding, more likely that there is an environment at Venus that allows for this in a non-life context. I think that's the answer that is that is going to have the least resistance. But I don't think I don't think it's the most sensible answer because we know ways that that phosphine can be produced biologically and we don't know ways in which it can be produced abiologically. So it makes sense to give serious consideration to the biological hypothesis. And I think this is another example of how attitudes have changed because once upon a time we might have said well we must have forgotten something about the chemistry. But now I think we have the confidence in our, in our techniques and in our models to say uh, there are other explanations and, and yeah. those other explanations might actually be more, might be more realistic. So how is what NASA is studying with perseverance on Mars, you know, literally today, related to the subjects covered in your book and how is it distinct? Well, the trouble with looking for life elsewhere in the universe is, number one, that we don't really know how, how common it is. So if it's really, really rare, let's say that it's extremely unlikely for life to, to arise on its own, then even with the billions of planets in the galaxy, only a few of them are going to have life and most of them are going to have very simple life and, and we're probably never even going to find out about it. So a lot still depends on how likely it is for life to arise. Now, when you look for life on Mars, there's two possibilities, right? It could be life that either originated on Earth or, or that life on Earth originated on Mars, which is a very respectable hypothesis and, and is quite likely. But if we were to find life on Mars that did not arise on Earth, then the game changes completely. Because if, if 
life could arise twice independently in the same solar system, it's everywhere. It's absolutely mm-hmm. everywhere in, in, in the universe. So one of the sort of exciting things that we're, people like me are holding our breath for is like, if they find anything, will it be like life on Earth? Will it be completely different? That changes a lot. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's not just like, is there life on Mars? It's there is that element of like, if it arose twice on neighboring planets in the same solar system, that just means that or the chances that it did that twice and nowhere else in the galaxy, the likelihood of that just goes so low. And one of the main themes that I noted from your book is this idea of universal properties and thinking about what about how life arose on Earth might be universal versus what might be Earth-specific. And I think it's easy or fairly easy to understand that the laws of physics and the laws of chemistry will apply on other planets. But there's something about biology that does seem to be Earth-bound and specific to the conditions of how the Earth was formed and things like that. Why do you think that there are universal properties to biology? Well, one of the reasons that that people do think, as you said, that that biology might not have rules like chemistry and physics have rules is that it's not that clear what biology is. It's fairly clear what physics is, right? You know, you drop something and it falls and and, and that's that's going to be the same everywhere. But if you ask someone what biology is so that I can find out what the laws of biology are, then that's a little bit more difficult because biology itself is defined by life on Earth. So you can see that there is a potential issue there. But when you look at biology and say, well, biology is actually the result of something. It's the result of this accumulation of complexity, these very primitive proto-cells developing into bacteria and then evolving into, into more sophisticated one-celled organisms and so on. That, that, that process of accumulation of complexity is actually what biology is about. And if you frame biology in that sense, then the laws are really quite straightforward. They are the laws by which complexity can accumulate. And they accumulate in a particular way that we see and describe as an ecosystem or, or something like that. But in, in fact, the biology is just the descriptive term for what the, the laws are producing. And these are the laws that are that are, that are the ones that are going to be operating everywhere. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that the universal property of biology is accumulation of complexity, which we can see here with the different life forms on Earth. But how do you think that those universal properties like will and won't be the same depending on the different conditions of a of a planet? So the properties of life will obviously depend on the conditions of the planet. At the very least, they'll depend on the biochemistry of, of the organisms, which could be very different. Right? Biochemistry could be like ours. It could be very different from ours. So the properties themselves are going to be different. But what can't be different is the way that these complex organisms have achieved their complexity in relation to each other. So there are certain things that simply must exist, things like competition. Mm. Okay, So if there's no competition, there's no reason for complexity to arise. And we understand quite well, from a mathematical perspective, how evolution by natural selection works, what is necessary for a community of organisms to become more complex. They can only become more complex if some of them manage better than others. So things like competition and, and, and things like reproduction even, we know have to be have to be necessary. What the results are will certainly depend on the particular planet. 
But then again, some of the results that we see on Earth may look like they're very Earth-specific, but they're actually, they actually just follow directly from the same laws. So the simplest example is parental care. So if the only way that a, an ecosystem on a planet can become complex is if some animals are more successful than others, then on every planet, there will be an advantage of some sort to looking after your offspring. So, so some things that, that sound quite specific are actually much more fundamental than they appear. Mm-hmm. I think it, it's really interesting to think about whether the process of evolution could look different on a different planet. You know, here on Earth, we follow Darwinian evolution. And one thing that shaped the evolutionary processes on Earth is sexual reproduction. You know, most animals on Earth do not reproduce asexually. They combine their gametes with a mate, they mix their genetic material, and they produce a new offspring. And there's no agreed-upon theory as to why sex evolved or why so many animals reproduce sexually. But do you think that sex is a quirk of Earth evolution, or do you think that that might be a universal property? Well, there's there's two questions here, really. One is, does alien sex have to look like Earth sex? And I think the answer to that is, is certainly no. The fact that we have this very specific form of reproduction with one male and one female parent is a is a fluke. It's a fluke of DNA and the way that DNA works. And, and it's reasonable to, to conjecture that if you've got some other molecule other than DNA, it might reproduce differently. Um, you might have multiple parents, you might have multiple, multiple sexes, you might have different combinations of a few of these and a few of those. So that would appear to be specific, although it's sufficiently simple that it might actually be quite widespread. But your real question was, what about sex in general? So as you say, there's no agreed explanation for why sex evolved. It is, it is perplexing. But we can play a, a slight a sleight of hand here and look retrospectively. And we can say, if there were no sex, would we expect a complex ecosystem to evolve? And there's a good chance that it probably wouldn't. So from that launch point, you could say, well, if there are billions of inhabited planets in in the galaxy, some of them will have complex ecosystems and some of them won't. Some of them will just be bacterial slime and some of them will have, you know, animals and plants and fish and birds and whatever. On those planets where there are complex ecosystems, is it likely that some form of sex will have evolved? And I think that if you were to look at it retrospectively like that, which isn't an explanation, it isn't a mechanism, I I think that, that there's good reason to think that that is the case that complex ecosystems won't evolve without some form of mixing of heritable information. So in your book, you emphasize that alien life will be based on different biochemistries as ours. On Earth, you know, carbon and water were really common. And so it makes sense that our life form is carbon and water-based. But in different conditions, it could arise completely different. But one step above biochemistry is cell biology. So all life on Earth is cellular, you know, meaning it's it's composed of membrane-bound sacs of fluid. Do you think that alien life will also be based on cells? I think this, it's an interesting question because it, because it raises two points. So when you're searching for alien life, one of the things you need to do is define what life is, right? And one of the definitions is that life needs to be contained. Life needs to exist within a restricted area. 
And, and that's for all kinds of reasons, but primarily it's, be, it's because life has to maintain a disequilibrium with the environment, right? If you're in equilibrium with the environment, if you're like a rock and you're the same temperature as everything around you, you're not alive. So, so there has to be a difference between you, that's alive, and the outside, which is not. So that implies some kind of, sort of spatial containment. So most people think... For that, for that reason, and a couple others, that that life will probably be contained within some kind of container, uh, as you say, a cell, or, or or perhaps something very different. But yeah, there are good reasons to think that some sort of container is necessary. Are there other aspects of evolution or life, like spatial containment, that seem to be inevitable or that feel inevitable? Well. I mean, the things that arise naturally from things that we believe are essential for evolution. So things like competition. Well, competition implies some sort of limited resource, something that not everyone can get as much of as they want. And that can be something simple like energy, food. It can be space. Uh, it can sometimes be time even. But they're competing for something. If they weren't competing for something there would be no difference in, in their offspring, and, and so there would be no evolution and, and no complexity. Then there's a small step, which I think is a justified step. But again, it, it's, it's this, like you said, it's, this is based on what we know on Earth. Well, if there's competition for energy, then they're going to start eating each other. Right? They're going to start exploiting each other and, and, and taking energy away from each other. So in that sense, things like predation should be very, very widespread because... We know that there must be a competition for energy. Can I, can I prove that predation must occur? No. But it does seem to be a phenomenon that really is dictated by the laws of biology, not by the conditions on Earth. Uh, so I'd love to get into more of the details from your book about what we can and can't hypothesize about alien life. And there are two sort of dichotomies that you set up that I would like to um, unpack. And the first connects to what we were talking about before, and that's this ability to potentially understand how life develops versus how life exists. So can you explain this difference to me? Yeah, that's actually a really key point because, because it's really common when you look at life on Earth and, and you see, you know, I don't know, a tiger with stripes and you think, wow, that's really well adapted for, for hiding in the shadows in the jungle and things like that. And it's very common to, to work backwards from traits that we see in life and say that evolved because it was good for hiding in the jungle or something like that. The problem is that's not how evolution works, right? Evolution works <laughs> forward, not backwards. So the trick here is that life has to evolve in such a way that on every step of the journey, the individuals are gaining a, a concrete advantage. That's a danger when looking at, at organisms on earth and, and saying, well, okay, this one can fly, and flying's really useful, so aliens can probably fly because flying is really useful. That may or may not be a good argument. But what's not a good argument is that aliens will fly because flying is useful. It will only happen if the ancestor of the flying alien got some little advantage by being able to fly a little bit. And of course, that's how, that's how flight evolved on Earth. But there's always got to be that stepwise progression. So you can't just look at an animal and say and say, well, that's gonna that's gonna occur on a, on another planet because it's um because it's so good. So thinking about alien life and not saying that they will have evolved to have these properties, but that their evolution will be also follow the same 
process of slow accumulation of beneficial beneficial traits. Yeah, and, and the best example of that, of course, is human intelligence, right? People always like to think, well, these aliens are gonna be they're gonna be intelligent aliens, because it's it's so great to be to be intelligent. But it doesn't work like that. It, it took three and a half billion years for, for a species to, to evolve our intelligence, not because it's particularly difficult, although it is, but because there needs to be a particular evolutionary pathway to that intelligence. It, it, animals are not working up to having this kind of intelligence. This is one of the problems with, with a lot of sci-fi aliens as well, which is that people tend to give them these sort of magical traits as if it you know, would be great to be able to fly, to, you know, to fly like Superman or, or be telepathic or be super intelligent and things like that. But if it didn't actually provide an, an advantage, it, it's just not going to happen. It doesn't evolve that way because because uh, we think it would be good in the end. Um, so there could be lots of life out there, lots of planets, really diverse, lots of incredible organisms, and none with, with sort of technological intelligence. That's quite possible. So one of the other dichotomies that you set up is how it might be better to understand how alien life acts versus what alien life looks like. So why do you think one is more attainable than the other? This is the, this is the place where conditions on Earth really are important, right? Because the way that animals look is depends on the way the world is, and you know the colors that they have because of the colors of the surroundings, and 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 this all this can be quite specific to Earth. There's also quite a lot of coincidence that plays a role in evolution of of some of these characteristics. So we have four limbs, just like an awful lot of animals. But that's a pure coincidence. You know, there's plenty of there's plenty of animals with 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 six or eight, and we could have evolved from from them instead of from fish ancestors, and then we would have had six or eight as well. So it's it's difficult to make guesses about those kinds of very specific features of aliens. The fact that we have limbs or legs at all, however, is actually very likely because they are incredibly useful. The fact that we have an even number is also incredibly likely because it's kind of hard to see the advantage of a, of a three-legged, simple creature crawling across the, the, you know, the floor of, of an ocean. There are many reasons to think that they should be symmetrical and should have pairs of, of, of appendages. But yeah, things like colour and the precise shape and, and things like that, it's going to depend a lot on, on how things go. It's going to depend a lot on cosmic coincidences, you know, got hit by an asteroid, didn't get hit by an asteroid, things like that. That makes sense to me that there are certain solutions that work really well, but that how those kind of present would be difficult to predict. So there are several chapters in your book dedicated to the different aspects of animal behavior and analyses of how and why those arose on Earth and how they might be different on other worlds. And these include movement, communication, intelligence, uh, sociality. And how animals on Earth express these behaviors is all dependent on environment. So how do you think about this connection between environment and behavior? Or how do you think in a wildly different environment, a unique behavior might evolve? Well, the environment might be wildly different. Of course, it might be, might be very similar on some planets. But, but even if it, if it were wildly different, then... There's still a lot of things in common. So, for instance, take intelligence. You're only going to evolve intelligence if you need it, if you need it to solve problems. Intelligence is there for solving problems. So if a planet has problems on it, if it's really difficult to get energy, 
then there may be an advantage to having some form of intelligence, some some ability to manipulate the environment in in ways that others can't. And so, you know, it doesn't really matter whether you're living in a, swimming in a sea of of liquid methane or, or, or concentrated sulfuric acid or something. The advantage that you gain from being able to solve complex problems is the same advantage. It's intelligence. And so things like that aren't actually going to be that different just because the physical characteristics of the world are different. Obviously, if the nature of the problems are different, then the nature of the intelligence is going to be different. But because there are so many planets, you know, rocky planets with liquid oceans and things like that, then, then, then a, lot of these, a lot of these problems you've got to solve are, are going to be pretty much similar to what they are on Earth. So do you think that there's a certain set of conditions where if we knew this about the environment, if we knew X, Y, and Z about the environment, we would be able to make a good guess about what life on that planet would be like? Is there a certain you know set of features that you would need to know? Or is there something about the way that life evolves that you would still have to see it before you really had any kind of knowledge about it? I would say it's kind of a combination of the two, because I think that the that the specific physical characteristics, um, obviously you can make some predictions, right? If, if life is in an underground ocean, it's going to be physically different from if it's in an ocean on the surface or if it's on the surface with, with, with an atmosphere. So things like that will tell you um, a lot about how life must be because of physical and, and, and chemical constraints. But more generally, the kind of thing that we need to know is more about the ecosystem, more about what's interacting. I don't really need to know, you know, do they use DNA or, or do they use carbon chemistry even? I need to know how many different kinds of organisms there are. Are there some that move and some that don't move? You know, are there some that gain their energy from the sun, from the starlight, or are there some that get energy from chemical means? And knowing the diversity of, of animals in an ecosystem will tell, will give you the biggest clue about what animals are going to be like, because it's the diversity of challenges on Earth that drive the diversity of life. We have billions of species because there are billions of different problems to be solved. If the planet were all very boring and uniform, then we wouldn't have that kind of diversity. So you you kind of got to know what's there already to know Mm -hmm. what's going to be there. Yeah, that's definitely one aspect about, you know, alien life that your book really highlighted for me that I guess I hadn't thought a lot about, which is, you know, thinking of an alien world, not just in terms of one species, you know, because we think, uh, you know, an alien visiting our planet, that, you know, that's that that one thing that lives on that planet. But really that for, you know, an intelligent enough creature with all of these traits that would be needed to actually get to a state where they could do interplanetary travel, would be the result of, you know, probably billions of years of evolution and, uh, you know, a huge amount of competing species that that kind of led to that. And it wasn't, some, yeah, something that I had really considered that aspect of it before. Yeah, and I think that uh, I think that's very true. If you if you look at the probable route to human intelligence, and you know, we don't we don't really know exactly how that evolved, and, and we don't know much about it, but we can certainly look at other great apes and and see what they do with their intelligence and the kind of way that they need to have complex brains to, to, to process these complex uh, social structures, and they need the complex social structures because of the complexity of their environment, then it seems like a reasonable guess that intelligence is going to arise on a planet with a complex ecosystem. You know, we're not sure about this, but we know that 
the complexity of the Earth's ecosystem seems to have been increasing pretty constantly for certainly hundreds of millions of years. And that's probably a process which drives itself, right? The more complex the ecosystem gets, uh, the more complex you need to be. And so it's likely that would happen on other planets as well. But I have no doubt, I have no doubt that if we were to go visit uh, a alien planet with a complex ecosystem, not just bacterial slime, then there will be there will be the equivalence of animals that we think are pretty dumb, animals that we think do really clever things, animals that we think are intelligent like us. Now, there is a slight complication here, of course, which is that because alien planets are so far away and we're not going to go visit them, the only way we'll really know details about, about life on these planets is is if they contact us, right? If we have some sort of interstellar communication. So that creates a kind of filter about how we may see alien life in the future in that we would only really know very much about alien worlds where a similar intelligence to ours has evolved such that it can send radio messages or build spaceships or or, or, or do something so that we can that we can somehow communicate with them. So whatever view we see of the of of the of life in, in the universe is likely to be biased towards uh, organisms that are like us. I'm really intrigued by this idea that, you know, the evolution of biological intelligence and the distinction of that from the development of advanced technologies. And I was particularly interested in this idea that at a certain point of biological intelligence, a species will create a technological solution to intelligence like we did with radios and computers. And I would just love for you to unpack that idea for me a little bit. Yeah, so this this comes back to this question of, are aliens going to have superpowers, right? There's no end of, of sci-fi aliens that, that are either super intelligent or they have some kind of telepathy or telekinesis and, and, and all these kinds of things. And, and it's, it's hard to see an evolutionary pathway that, that would lead to that, right? Because when you get to be intelligent you're probably going to realize that, that you can actually do better than evolution. Evolution is really inefficient. It's not a good way to make things. Uh, it's the only way to make things if you're not designing them, but it's, it's, it's not efficient. So what's happened on Earth is that we've realized that we can build computers. Okay, we're not yet good enough to build computers that, that have brains like ours, but we will eventually. Some people disagree, but I think we probably will eventually. And so once you reach the point where you can design things, you will. And, and at that point, really, do you need to be super intelligent if you can build a super intelligent computer? So that, that, that sort of evolutionary pressure to become more and more and more intelligent probably stops when you, when you get intelligent enough to realize that you can do better than, than evolution. I mean, it does raise the question, because, I mean, the way evolution works is that you have a pressure, you know, an evolutionary pressure, which is driving the evolution in a certain direction. So in the past, the evolutionary pressure was for us to become more and more intelligent so that we could solve the problems of our environment. But now we have these technological solutions we've created, which kind of help us solve the same problems that, you know, evolution might have over, you know, far longer timescales. So do you think that that means by creating these technological solutions, we are actually releasing that evolutionary pressure and that we might actually be kind of capping our biological intelligence? There's some evidence that humans are still evolving pretty quickly. I don't think that we've completely stepped aside from from the evolutionary pathway, but there's no doubt that What's really happening, if you look at human society, what, what's, what's really important is not 
how many children you have. It's more the ideas that you spread. Um, and it's these ideas that are spreading through through human society as, as much as genomes. But but we can't escape the fact that we're biological machines. And if anything, you know what, this really underlines the fact that evolution's inevitable, right? Even in humans, where we think we've got control of the environment now, you know, we can we can build houses and wear clothes. We don't need to worry about all of this survival stuff. But evolution is still going on in the background. And we're still evolving genetically because it's, it's an inevitable process. It's got to happen. And one of the reasons why I think evolution is a universal explanation for the complexity we see, apart from the fact that it seems to be the only mechanism, is that it just happens. It happens by itself, automatically, all the time. Give, the, give it the conditions and there will be evolution. You know, one of the topics from your book that we talk about here at A16Z all the time is artificial intelligence, although we're not thinking about it in terms of alien species. But, you know, you mentioned that you think that we will develop computers that are sentient. And so that raises the possibility that the alien life that we encounter might be artificial. It might be a life that was designed by you know, whatever alien life was on that planet. So if alien life is artificial, would the same rules and constraints of biology still apply to it? Or, you know, does everything kind of go out the window once you're dealing with an art of, you know, a, a life form that's a product? Yeah, I don't know. That's a big question. And, and I'm not sure what the answer is. What I have claimed in my book is that there are still some things that must remain the same. Even the smartest alien artificial intelligence is still bound by a few rules. And one of the rules is that resources are still going to be limited, right? You still have to get everything that you need. Uh, another rule is that there must be competition. So here's the sort of the interesting thing, which is that principles of game theory are very, very powerful. And they're going to apply even to hyper-intelligent uh, robots, right? You know, if they're, they're going to be competing against each other. And so questions of how interacting, competing, intelligent agents behave, we understand quite a lot about that from, from the mathematics. The mathematics doesn't change. So I think there will be some things that, that even, even alien artificial life will have to follow certain rules. But it's, it's a tough one. So... You know, this is a subject that I love to think about and love to talk about, you know, especially in the context of thinking about how life arose here on Earth and some of kind of the core mysteries of that. But do you think there's a bigger goal to this conjecture other than like how cool and fun it is to ponder? I think that I think there's always a bigger picture. There's always a bigger picture because really the only reason we do science at all is because we want to understand the universe and we want to understand what our place is and, and what it all means. And there's little practical reason for, for understanding how distant galaxies behave. So it's all about our fundamental human need to find out what, what, what there is. You know, we wouldn't really be human if we didn't want to do that. So if there's a chance that life is out there and we just chose not to find out about it, I think that would be, that would go very much against our nature. Mm -hmm. I agree very much that there's something like just unavoidable about thinking about it and, and conjecturing it and that there is a way in which thinking about life on other planets helps us to think differently about life on our planet. I'm curious how you feel like thinking about alien life 
informs or influences how you think about humans and what it means to be human? Yeah. Well, I mean, here's the big question, right? If we discover aliens and they look just like us, what would you think? That's a really difficult question because they're clearly not related to us, right? We're much more closely related to dolphins or, or, or jellyfish than we are to them, but they're just like us. Does that mean they're human? Does that mean they're part human? Do they have human characteristics? It seems to be that however we define humanity on Earth can't really work very well when we talk about alien creatures. I mean, there's a lot of argument. What rights do we give to non-human animals? Should they be given similar rights to ours? Different? How different? You know, th these are questions that are not based on how closely related we are to them. We are not particularly closely related to dolphins. And yet we would feel that dolphins should be given more rights than other animals, even other mammals, rats, for instance. So clearly relatedness can't be the only thing. If we are not related to aliens, does that mean that they, 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 they share nothing of what we share? No, they may well. They may well share a great deal of, of what we have. So I think it's it's even if we never find ourselves face to face with humanoid aliens, it's a, it's a question that we have to ask ourselves because it, it tells us how we relate to other life on Earth. Right? If, we, if we think we should relate in a particular way to aliens that seem a bit like us but are completely unrelated to us, um, then surely we should be thinking more carefully about how we should relate to animals on Earth that are, that are like us but, but are related to us. Yeah, there's such a Western tradition of thinking of humans as separate and distinct from nature, but really we are a product of nature. We're a product of the exact same evolutionary forces as every other species on Earth. And, you know, when thinking about aliens, thinking about how they are also products of the same evolutionary forces on their planet and how that is, you know, something that unites us is, I think, a really powerful way to think about that. And think about our relationship to to other animals and to our environment. Absolutely, I mean, I, I think that would be I think that would be a huge revelation. I think I think that were we to discover alien life, particularly complex alien life, which could be very different from us, and yet arose through the same mechanisms, then that really tells us something about our place in the universe and 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 about our place on Earth. You know, and, and the the. This idea that we are the way we are because we evolved in a complex ecosystem, right? We did not evolve in a monoculture or, or in a, a cement-covered uh, city. Right? We evolved to be the way we are because of our complex ecosystem. And we need to be reminded of that sometimes. I agree. <laughs> I think that's a perfect note to end on. Eric, thank you so much for joining me on BioEats World today. I really enjoyed our conversation. It's really, I feel like it's really expanded my mind. I had a great time. That's it for BioEats World this week. BioEats World is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Lauren Richardson, with help from the A16Z bio team and Seven Morris, and is part of the A16Z podcast network, which you can read more about at a16z.com forward slash pod network. If you've got questions about this episode or want to suggest a topic for a future episode, please email bioeatsworld, that's one word, at a16z.com. And for more on how biology is technology, subscribe to our newsletter at a16z.com forward slash newsletters. 